John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus's words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Thank you, Beth. <clears throat> Well, good morning. My name is Sarah Seabrook. I am on staff team here at HTC, and I'm so privileged to be spending this next little while with you unpacking this scripture. This past week, I got to watch my daughters perform in their school play. This year, they did Aladdin, and one of my daughters was cast as the genie. The genie, for those who have not watched said play, is the magical being who appears when the lamp is rubbed and who is willing and able to grant the holder of the lamp three wishes. And as I watched my daughter be a genius genie, I reflected on how much this genie is like my own experience of God. Except as a Christian, my wishes aren't limited to just three. I can expect that because I have 
unlimited access to the God of the universe, he will happily grant whatever I wish, whenever I ask. Or does he? The truth is, whatever area of my life I honestly look at, whether it's parenting, whether it's marriage, it's my job, or even my walk with Christ, none of them live up to the expectations that I have for them. Just one week, one evening in the Seabrook home would reveal that our marriage and my parenting is far from perfect. And if you were able to listen in onto my deepest prayers, you would quickly realize that my walk with Christ is far from magical. What do we do when life does not meet our expectations? What do we do when Jesus does not live up to our expectations? Our passage that Beth so beautifully read for us this morning takes us back to the early days of Christ's ministry. If we read the verses preceding this, we are carried along in a whirlwind tour of magic, miracles, wonders. Just last week, Ed unpacked the verses before this that told us about Jesus healing the servant of a centurion. And then he raised a dead young man because he was filled with compassion for the boy's mother. Jesus was quickly rising to the top of the runnings for the much-anticipated Messiah. And all those who had been expecting him for hundreds of years were starting to sit on the edge of their seats in anticipation of his grand takeover. Front and center of those expecting the Messiah's arrival was John the Baptist. John is the prophet we read about back in the Old Testament in Malachi, who had been actively preparing the way for the coming Messiah. When Jesus came to John, he baptized him. And as John prayed for Jesus, the heavens opened and John witnessed the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and heard the audible words, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Just imagine the anticipation that John had for what Jesus would do next. Imagine his expectations for what Jesus would do as he walked away from that baptism. We read a little later that John had made fast enemies with the king, with King Herod. Firstly, John had continually proclaimed that the true king of Israel would be coming soon. John also called out King Herod for his affair with his sister-in-law. So unsurprisingly, John was in a dungeon. And it's in this prison cell that John hears these reports of what Jesus is going about the country doing. 
and he sends his own disciples out to confirm with Jesus whether he is this much-anticipated Messiah. We see in verse 22 of this passage we just read that when Jesus replies to John, he alludes to Isaiah chapter 61, which begins with, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. This prophecy is one that John, as a scholar of the Torah, would have memorized and Jesus would have known that. It's kind of like if you've grown up in the church, how you would maybe know the Lord's Prayer. So if I started the verse, our Father who art in heaven, most people who'd grown up in the church would be able to end that with hallowed be your name. Similarly, in this passage, Jesus quotes Isaiah But what he does in his reply to John is he alludes to the first half of the scripture and he leaves out the last bit, the bit that says to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. What was Jesus saying here? He was telling John, yes, yes, John, I am. Am the Messiah, the one that you have been waiting for. But John, I'm not coming for you. Now, if I were John, I would be feeling a little more than personally offended. Jesus had just healed a servant that he had never met. He'd only met the master who was a centurion a leader in the enemy army. Jesus had raised the dead son of a woman he didn't know, a woman who was worthless in society as a childless widow. But what about John? John was Jesus' cousin. Jesus had said of John, no greater man has ever been born of women. Yet he intentionally leaves John here in this dungeon. And slight spoiler alert, if you've not read to the end of John's story, we realize that John ultimately was beheaded. His head was handed to Herod's new wife on a silver platter. And so in verse 20, we see John has begun to doubt Jesus. Was he really? who the scriptures promised? Are you the one or are we still waiting? And Jesus knowing that John was doubting, he offers instead an invitation in a very different form than what John was expecting. Not a get out of free, get out of jail free card. His gift is rather these words. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What does this mean? 
Blessed, blessed can be interpreted as happy, as fortunate, as at peace. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble. Stumble is a word picture that is used throughout scripture. And it refers to when somebody stumbles, falls, or trips up. And that's warning against falling into sin or falling away from God. Jesus' heart here is that we are truly blessed or we know deep peace if we don't trip up or fall away or get angry and turn our back on God because he doesn't live up to our expectations. In the case of John, he, along with all those who were longing for the promised Messiah, had expectations of Jesus that were not Jesus' modus operatus. Jesus' kingdom was to come, but it wasn't going to be through a violent revolution. Instead, it was going to be a selfless, humiliating sacrificial death. And unfortunately, this pattern of God not meeting the expectations of his people has been true of many faithful followers. The prophet Isaiah came to the end of his life by being cut in two. The apostle Peter, the rock on whom the church was built, he was crucified upside down countless men and women of deep faith have been disappointed by their expectations of God. And I wonder if you would also count yourself as someone who has felt confusion, doubt, disappointment because of unmet expectations. But wonderfully, Jesus says here, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. He doesn't say blessed is the one who never doubts. It actually sounds like he is anticipating doubt. I actually grew up believing that doubt was the opposite of faith. That to have doubt was in some way being unfaithful to Jesus. It was a secret sin that I would never speak out loud. But in the experience of John, we have our first companion in doubt. John, the one who had leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when Mary walked into the room pregnant with Jesus. John, who had witnessed the supernatural descending of the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. John, who had been at the front of the charge pointing people to Jesus as the promised Messiah. Here in this prison cell, John has his own share of doubt. I've known doubt as I followed Jesus. Nine years ago, I went on an Easter trip to Israel with a group of about 30 other Christians. This group was made up of a wonderful mix of incredibly faith-filled believers. We were all eager to experience the Holy Land over the period of Easter. Our expectations for how we would encounter God in this setting were off the charts. 
Two days into our trip, we just finished dinner in old Jerusalem, and we were getting ready to head out for a post-dinner coffee. And our friend Lydia came into my room to say that she wasn't feeling very well. She said her allergies were acting up, and she was planning on taking a couple of antihistamines and calling it an early night. Within the space of about five minutes, she went from feeling a little unwell to being passed out on our bedroom floor with some of us doing CPR on her. See, Lydia had a sesame seed allergy, and she had inadvertently eaten fish with tahini sauce on it. And despite taking antihistamines and being given a shot from an EpiPen, her airways had begun to close up. The ambulance was called and Lydia was rushed to hospital where she was put on a ventilator. Her parents weren't on the trip. They were back in South Africa. And my sister, who is a doctor and a good friend of Lydia's, phoned her parents to say, you need to come quickly. All through that night, we held a prayer vigil for Lydia. We gathered on the rooftop in the middle of old Jerusalem and pleaded with God for Lydia's life. We had a couple of pastors in the group. We had a few missionaries in the group. We had people who had known and walked with God for decades. If God was going to show compassion, surely it would be to this group. Lydia, an absolute woman of character, 30 years old, a primary school teacher, a mentor to so many, and a woman truly after God's own heart. If God would choose to act out of the natural order of things, surely it would be for this precious woman. Next to her bedside, we found a little passage of scripture that she was planning to share on in a devotional later in the week. It was the passage of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Surely he was saying he was going to act miraculously for her. The next day we went to Lazarus's tomb. We huddled in there and we pleaded with the great physician to once again extend mercy. We went to the wailing wall, put our little prayers on a piece of paper, shoved them into those cracks, crying, God have mercy. God chose to work outside of our expectations of what he should do. Lydia died on the 31st of March, 2014, in Jerusalem, after being on life support for a week. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. I am sure many of us have experienced pain have experienced disappointment and doubt, or we've watched as others that we love have. Why has God chosen to bless so-and-so with five beautiful children, and my friend is still infertile after 10 years of prayer? Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. 
Why does God continue to ignore my plea for healing, even though I promise I will give him glory for it, when others around me are being healed left, right, and center? Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Why doesn't he silence those skeptics once and for all in a show of grand um, a, a gesture that would just bring an end to all these debates about whether or not there really is a God over all and in all, the one who gave his life for us 2,000 years ago. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. What would be worse to discover that he can't answer my prayer or that he's chosen not to meet my expectation. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. And so we find that we too doubt. What do we do with that doubt? It seems that doubt has the potential to do two things. Firstly, it can make us incredibly disappointed, angry, bitter with God, and that often lands up leading to feelings of shame. Somehow I'm a failure in the journey of faith. The result of this response is that we inevitably run away from God, away from community, away from our faith. We put our God up and refuse to trust him any longer. This response is based on the incorrect assumption that faith is the absence of doubt. Just like we make the mistake of assuming that courage is the absence of fear. Doubt is to faith what fear is to courage. It solidifies it, it validates it, Tim Keller, when he speaks about faith, uh, about doubt, he says the following, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. 
What's the second option of how we can respond in a season of doubt? It's to face it. Really practically, how do we face our doubts well? Here are just four things for us to think about as we experience seasons of doubt. Firstly, to continue to watch and listen for the works and the words of Jesus. The best way to do this is to keep showing up to community, whether that's church on a Sunday, your connect group midweek, maybe it's your daily moments of prayer and Bible reading. It is so common that I come to church feeling discouraged in my faith and just a few verses into the worship, my spirit can settle and I remember that God really is a good, good father, that he really is at work in the world around me. Sometimes I just need to be sustained by the faith of others. Maybe allow them to pray with me as we come forward for prayer ministry at the end. Secondly, reading books or listening to podcasts or stories of how God has been at work there are other followers of Jesus way more intellectual than me who have gone through journeys of doubt and they've wrestled and they've taken time and used their mental capacity to write about it. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, it's an amazing one. Mark Sayers does Disappearing Church. Or maybe reading is another thing. But coming to the, the monthly prayer meetings, where we bring our mission partners and they share of how God has been at work in the world. These stories have no good explanation other than that Jesus is who he said he is and he is at work and alive in the world. Thirdly, stay emotionally healthy. John Markoma does a great teaching on doubt, and he reminds us that we are whole people. Doubt is as much an emotional and physical issue as it is an intellectual or spiritual one. John doubted, coincidentally, when he was in prison, alone, hungry, tired. Studies on doubt have listed being tired as one of the main reasons for doubt. In his book on this, D.A. Carson puts it like that, like this, doubt may be fostered by sleep deprivation. If you keep burning the candle at both ends, sooner or later you will indulge in more and more mean cynicism. And the line between cynicism and doubt is a very thin one. If you are among those who become nasty, cynical, or even full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obliged to get the sleep you need. We are whole complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. Fourthly, the goal is to trust. 
The goal is not certainty or control. In life, we often have to make commitments to something or someone with less than 100% certainty. An example, our wonderful couples, Keith, getting married um, just in a little bit. There is no way, as much as I know Keith loves Maria, there is no way that they are 100% certain that they will have a perfect life together. But they do, they will make a 100% commitment on their wedding day till death us do part. Faith is about trust. It's not about certainty. Just to live a daily life, no matter whether you consider yourself religious or not, everyone lives by faith, trusting. Trusting that the brakes of my car won't fail on my way home. Trusting that my child's new high school will be a place that develops her character and abilities and won't be abusive of her. Faith that the chef in the restaurant that we go to for lunch will wash his hands when he leaves the restroom. Faith that the anesthetist knows how to mix the drug concoction just right when he does my father's surgery. I could be wrong on any of those things, but I have to make a decision to trust at some point so as to go about life on this planet. We all live by faith or trust, with a reliance on somebody or something as we move through this earth. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Control and certainty are. The end goal of a follower of Jesus isn't a life free of doubt, but it's a life full of trust. Jesus calls us to trust him, not our ideas about him, but the person of Jesus and our sense of well-being and of happiness will rise and will fall in proportion to our level of trust in God. When life, when work, when circumstances, relationships, our experience of church, when they don't pan out the way we expected, and the message that we seem to get from Jesus is one that says, I love you, but I'm not coming for you in the way you're expecting. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Let's bow our heads as I close with a modern day translation of this verse. Blessed, happy, fortunate, so well off and at peace are all those followers of Jesus who even when life is hard, when the dream is crushed, when the diagnosis is lousy, when they have more questions than answers and live in the fog of confusion and can't chart a way out, even then, they don't fall away into sin. They don't walk away from God. 
Instead, they trust, they sit and wait. Whatever comes, comes. They're okay, happy even, because the settled condition of their heart is to live in reliance on the goodness of God. Amen.